Hello, everyone. This is Katie. Thank you for joining us today with Health Formation, the podcast where we give you health and wellness news to use. I am here today with my guest co-host. I have Tyler. Hey, Ty. Hey, how's it going? Tyler did such a great job on episode four that he came back. He's so thrilled. I'm excited to be here and excited to be back. Thanks for joining us back today. Did you enjoy your little vacation that you took since you we last talked with you? I did. I relaxed. I prepared. And I'm ready to get into our next topic. How was Lake Powell? It was amazing. Got some nice time R&R in the sun with the fam. Got to see the fam. It was really nice. And spent time outside. Great. So today I have one of my best friends with us today as our guest, Dr. Beth Mills. Hey, Beth. Hi. How's it going? It's good. How are you? Doing great. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for asking me to be here today. We're so excited to have you. Um, so tell us a little bit about who you are and your role as a pharmacist and your role here at Campbell. Okay. Um, well, I've been uh, on faculty here at Campbell for uh, six years, and I, um, I do teach in the classroom, but I also have a clinical site at the Benson Area Medical Center, which is about 20 miles from here where I manage chronic diseases, including obesity, diabetes, and COPD. And um, I take students at that site on their clinical rotations, on their fourth year clinical rotations, as well as pharmacy residents in their first and second postgraduate years. Awesome. So there's not much you don't do, pretty much. That's right. <laughs> um, so tell us a little bit about your interest in health and wellness and some of the topics that you like to research for your own wellness and the wellness of your patients. So on a professional level, as far as what I um, practice in the clinic, uh, because since I do manage diabetes and obesity, these are metabolic diseases that can be controlled or managed with lifestyle change, uh, diet changes. So I really try to educate my patients on adopting uh, a whole food plant-based diet as much as possible, Yay. realizing that um, in some instances it's not as it's not realistic and it is a huge change from what they're currently eating. So if I could at least get them to eat more non, starchy, leafy green vegetables, and to get more fruits in their diet, um, I would be happy if they just ate one fruit and one vegetable each day. Uh, so sometimes that's where we start. Um, but certainly to try to avoid processed foods in that um, meal plan as well. Uh, for personal uh, lifestyle, I currently have been on a whole food plant-based journey for about two months, <laughs> thanks to you. <laughs> we're on this journey together. We're on this journey together, and we have been very passionate about it, and we've been trying to educate ourselves as much as possible, listening to all kinds of podcasts and reading, and um, the more that we read and listen, the more it solidifies our decision to eat a whole food plant-based diet. And this is something that you guys both have been trying to get me on, and I'm hesitant to, but I'm working on it. You do Meatless Mondays sometimes. Some Mondays. <laughs> so that's a good start. Meatless Mondays is a good start. You made vegan tacos last week, and you told me how good they were. They were very good, but I doused them in sauce. Yeah, they're still vegan. Um, so today we're going to be talking about sugar, sugar substitutes, artificial sweeteners, and the like. 
Um, so Beth picked this topic. What landed you on this topic? Well, probably the first thing that made me think of this topic is that there was some evidence that was just reported, uh, published um, out of France. Uh, that is the article that we're going to talk about today that um, looked at the association between sugar sweetened beverages and artificial sweetened beverages and their possible association to, to certain cancers. Um, but also... It's just a very important topic to talk about because, number one, there is so much confusion about the different types of sugars. What are sugar alcohols? Um, Are they safe for us? Are artificial sweeteners safe for us? There's so much controversy right now um, coming out about all of these sweeteners. Plus, we have, you know, some of our bigger organizations like the American Heart Association and the American Diabetes Association that say, oh, okay, you can use these in moderation um, in order to remove sugar from your diet uh, and hopefully help with weight control, which we're going to talk about that too. I think um, there's a little bit of controversy about that. And I think this topic is actually really important because, I mean, you go to a restaurant nowadays and at every table there's a little bin with like three or four different either sugars or artificial sweeteners or anything. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Good segue to start out. Let's talk a little bit about the different types of sugar and the different names for sugar, the different things people might see and what they should look out for um, if you're looking at the nutrition label of something um, and what might be sugar or disguised as sugar. Okay. Um, Well, first of all, I think we need to start with just plain table sugar, which is sucrose. And that is a disaccharide, meaning that it has two molecules that are joined together. And one of those is glucose and the other is fructose. So both of those are what we call monosaccharides. And so we, we would say that sucrose is 50% glucose and 50% fructose. Uh, sucrose is naturally occurring. It is, it is a refined sugar and we do, it is um, extracted from sugar beets or cane sugar. And then, um, as you know, it is added to many, many different processed foods, um, such as cereals, cereal bars, dressing, soft drinks. Everything. Almost everything. It literally shocks me that you cannot find a salad dressing without sugar added to it. Right. This bothers me. Plus, on top of that, that we're getting it in our food, a lot of people will add sugar to things like coffee Mm -hmm. and tea. We live in the South. And so most of my patients drink sweet tea and one, um, one pitcher of tea will have two cups of sugar, which is a tremendous amount of sugar. It's way more sugar than anybody should have in a week, let alone in a day. And so I think that people just don't realize that. I think they think that if they're not adding sugar to their foods, that they're not getting additional sugars when it's actually added to almost all of the processed foods that we eat. So one of the things that I think is important too when you're looking at a nutrition label is recognize the different, recognizing the difference between sugar and added sugar. So foods can have naturally occurring sugars, especially if there's fruit um, or if they have carbohydrates in them, they're going to have naturally occurring sugars. So that would be your sugar. And then um, you might see on a label indented under sugar is added sugar. So that would be what Beth was just talking about when we add sucrose or... Um, brown rice syrup to a processed food, that's your added sugar. Um, And one thing that we 
really want to try to limit is the amount of added sugar that you are eating in a day. So we should try to limit that to about 25 grams or less of added sugar. And if you look at a bottle of soda, everything is added sugar in in a bottle of soda. So that's probably double the amount of added sugar, depending on the size of soda, that you should be eating in a day. All right. So I think that um, it's important to talk about the difference between the two monosaccharides that are found in sucrose. Okay. The difference between glucose and fructose. The glucose is uh, one of those monosaccharides, and it is actually the body's preferred source of energy. Um, So when you eat foods, the carbohydrates that you eat are broken down and absorbed as glucose and your body will metabolize those and use that glucose for energy. But if you consume more than you need at the time, it can be stored in your muscle and liver cells in the form of glycogen. Right. So fructose is the other monosaccharide found in sucrose and it is naturally occurring in things like fruit and honey agave, which is a cactus, and most of your root vegetables, and it, but it is also added to processed foods in the form of something called high fructose corn syrup, and I'm sure that most of our listeners have heard of that, but yes. it can be very confusing. Is it good for you? Is it bad for you? Um, one thing is that fructose is extracted from the same source that we get our sucrose, which is sugar beets and sugar cane, but also can come from corn. Right. So high fructose corn syrup, definitely from corn. Right. And what's the difference between when you're getting fructose, um, processed fructose versus fructose from a fruit? Because obviously fruits have fructose in them. Um, how are those different and how might those impact the uh, metabolism differently? Well, when you're eating fruit and vegetables that contain fructose, you're eating a whole food. So you're getting vitamins and nutrients and antioxidants and you're, the, di- you know, the process of digestion is slower and you're not overwhelming your, the liver's ability to metabolize the fructose. And so it is not harmful to eat fructose from those sources as long as you're eating them from a whole food source. Right. And they have fiber in them too, which helps with the digestion. That's correct. Yes. Love fiber. Love fiber. Um, So if, but if you're consuming fructose that is processed, such as the high fructose corn syrup, and you're over consuming the fructose, then one of the... One of the differences between the fructose and the glucose is that it can only be metabolized by the liver. So it's the only organ in the body that can metabolize the fructose into glucose. But if you overwhelm that process, then the liver will convert from uh, storing it as or converting it to glucose and will turn it into fat. And so that basically is increasing your, your blood triglycerides, your LDL, so your total cholesterol, and it will also store in the cells of your liver and in other cells in the body, and they become intoxicated, which could decrease the ability of your body to respond to insulin, so it contributes to insulin resistance. It also could contribute to weight gain, obesity, metabolic syndrome, type 2 diabetes, and something called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, and many other things. So that's, that's not an all-inclusive list. Um, so in, in small amounts, it, it may be okay, but the problem with our 
standard American diet is that we're over consuming these products and they're hidden. So we don't really know how much of those products that we're actually getting. And then another thing that is interesting is that fructose can also increase our hunger hormone, which is called ghrelin. And so it actually stimulates your appetite and can increase food consumption. And so not a lot of people know that probably, but once, so these foods that are high in high fructose corn syrup, or if you're over consuming them, they're actually causing people to eat more calories than they would if they had not consumed them. And again, that's just fructose in the processed form, correct? Not fructose from correct. a fruit. So that if you correct. eat an apple, it won't have that same effect. Correct. You cannot overeat apples. All right. So you mentioned something about agave nectar, um, and I've seen that in stores, and obviously that's where tequila is made from. Um, and it's been said that those, that's good for patients with diabetes. Um, what's your opinion on that? Yeah. So we uh, have historically recommended agave nectar to patients who have diabetes because it has a lower glycemic index. And what that what that means, the glycemic index is a number that we assigned to a food from zero to 100 that represents how much rise in blood sugar or blood glucose that a person will get two hours after they've consumed that food. The lower the number, the lower the impact on the blood glucose. So the lower the number, the, the better it is for a person to consume if they have diabetes because it decreases that spike in their blood sugar after they've eaten the food. So um, as a reference, pure glucose has a value of 100. So it is the reference that we utilize to compare other foods to determine its value. So um, you said agave was lower, which means it would have a less, less of a spike than glucose. Is that correct? That is correct. Okay. But what we know about agave nectar is that it actually is made up of almost 90%. It can be anywhere from 70 to 90% fructose. This would be a, what we would call a high fructose sweetener. And so for patients who have already have metabolic syndrome or they have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, type 2 diabetes, we want to stay away from very high fructose containing sweeteners because they already are in that metabolic state where they have that fat intoxication. So we would just be feeding that. So this is a good example of when something is considered to be natural. And a lot of times people will see natural on a label and think that it's automatically better. But just because something is natural doesn't mean that it's always necessarily the best. Um, so transitioning over, also talking about patients with diabetes again, uh, or patients that are trying to limit their sugars, maybe people that are doing ketogenic diet. A lot of times we talk about sugar alcohols. So what um, is your take on the sugar alcohols and what are some different types of sugar alcohols we might see on a nutrition label? So sugar alcohols typically are going to... the the name will end in OL. So some common ones that we see are erythritol, mannitol, sorbitol, and xylitol. So xylitol may sound familiar because a lot of our um, reduced sugar or sugar-free chewing gums have xylitol in them. Um, so sugar alcohols are basically just a hybrid combination of sugar, mole sugar molecules added to alcohol molecules. And so they um, can be found naturally in some fruits, but mostly are considered a processed sweetener. 
Um, so it's, it's, they're not no calorie. However, they do contribute some calories and each of the different sugar alcohols would have um, a different calorie content or represent a different amount of calories. So um, erythritol only has about 5% of the calories of the same amount of sugar, whereas xylitol has the highest. It's about 60% of the calories of the same amount, <clears throat> same amount of sugar. What did, didn't you tell me something about xylitol yesterday? Yeah, and uh, me and Beth were actually just talking about it. Xylitol is used um, in a lot of gums, like she said. And uh, I have some friends in the dental profession. Shout out Noah. And, hey, Noah. Uh, Hi, Noah. <laughs> he told me that it's actually good for your teeth because it increases saliva production, um, and saliva is good for your teeth. Right. And so there is some data that says that it decreases the um, occurrence of cavities. So xylitol is good for your oral health, but then I know you talked about erythritol maybe being the best tolerated sugar alcohol. Yeah, that's right. So um, erythritol, because of where it is digested, it decrease it has the least amount of gastrointestinal side effects or adverse effects than some of the other alcohols. So if you if you are a person who um, eats a lot of sugar free or no sugar added foods and you've had some little um, upset stomach or some cramping, maybe even diarrhea, that's coming from the sugar alcohol. Erythritol is, has the least amount of adverse effects, those types of effects, than the other uh, four that we mentioned. Okay, great. So now I think we should move into what I usually consider kind of the enemy, which would be the chemical artificial sweeteners that we have. So sucralose, aspartame, those different ones that you would see, like Tyler said, in the little packet on the table at the restaurant. Exactly. So we recommend these non, what we call non-nutritive sweeteners or artificial sweeteners to our patients who are trying to lose weight or who are trying to lower their blood glucose or blood sugar um, because they are exactly what we just said. They do not have calories associated with them, and therefore they do not stimulate, um, they do not increase glucose after consuming them, um, and they do not actually have any effect on insulin release either, but what for the ab- most part. But what about their effect on our cravings for more sweetness and more carbohydrates? Well, let me just say that there are five FDA-approved artificial sweeteners. Okay. And those are sucralose, aspartame, ace sulfame, K, saccharin, and neotame. And so these are have been approved by the FDA and in, in considered safe at intakes that were studied, which are typically lower than what a typical or an average person would consume in a day. So I there is a little bit of controversy about that. Don't even know what those are. So which ones are which? Sucralose is... Sucralose is... Splenda. Splenda. Aspartame is equal. Right. I'm not sure what acylfame K is. Saccharin is um, the pink packet. Sweet and low? Sweet and low. Okay. And neotame is NutraSweet. Even though replacing your sweetened, your sweeteners that have calories with non-calorie sweeteners or artificial sweeteners may help you decrease calories and could contribute to some weight loss which could help reduce the risk for heart disease and diabetes, there are some concerns that they're actually 
cause people to consume more calories in the long run. So there, there's many different reasons for this, but um, a few would be that people just may replace the lost calories with other food sources. Mm-hmm. So how many times have you had the French fries because because you got a Diet Coke instead of a regular Coke? So people rationalize in their mind that since I'm saving calories on my beverage, then I can consume more calories in my food. Uh, the other is that they may change the way we actually taste food. So these sweeteners are far more potent um, sweeteners, they stimulate the sugar receptors, um, uh, much more than just regular sugar would, and they can cause a distaste for less sweet, healthier foods. So you get so used to this very powerful sweetener that tastes so sweet that if you were to eat a piece of fruit or a vegetable, that it would actually not taste as good and you would not want it because your, your body is wanting that really, really sweet taste. Yeah, I actually have a friend who has been doing the ketogenic diet for a while, and so she cut out um, starchy vegetables when she was first doing it, and then when I remember when she incorporated carrots back into her diet because she had no sweeteners, she said that the carrot tasted so sweet. But if you, if your tongue and your brain is kind of more used to these artificial sweeteners, you're not going to have that same kind of effect. So it's really just what you are used to. Right. So also, um, eating these artificial sweeteners on a regular basis can prevent the association that we have of sweetness with caloric intake, causing us to actually crave more sweets. So there was actually a study conducted um, called the San Antonio Heart Study, and the participants who drank more than 21 diet drinks per week, so I would say an average of three diet drinks per day, which almost all of my patients do. It's a lot were twice as likely to become overweight or obese as people who didn't drink diet soda. And in the multi-ethnic study of atherosclerosis, that's another study that was conducted looking at artificial sweeteners, the daily consumption of diet drinks was associated with a 30% increased risk for metabolic syndrome and a 67% increased risk for type 2 diabetes. So that's actually really interesting because a lot of times my patients do ask me what the harms of diet soda are um, and because they know it's not worsening their diabetes or increasing their blood glucose. But this shows that there are harms outside of it just being zero calories. Right. I think that it's a great stepping stone. So if you're a patient, if you're a patient who has diabetes Um, or just wanting to reduce sugary beverages from your diet for weight control, an initial first step could be to convert to diet drinks with the goal of being to eliminate those eventually from your your daily consumption. Right. I agree. Definitely try to get rid of those if you can. Um, So now on kind of the opposite end of the spectrum of our chemicals that we don't like, we have what I consider to be healthy option, you can tell me if I'm correct, but are more natural sweeteners like stevia or monk fruit. So what do you think about those? Yeah, so stevia is actually a plant that's native to South America, um, and it is very sweet. Um, It actually is not what we are consuming, though, when we buy stevia at the grocery store. So we are actually buying a refined glycoside extract that's known as ribodioside A, which is abbreviated REB-A. So if you're going to look at any of your stevia products at Food Lion or Walmart, they will have that REB-A on the label. 
And this is a process, it's, it's refined, but it is actually what is used in most of the studies that have been done. Um, so we don't know if the actual plant itself, if you were to buy it and grow it and use it as a sweetener, there is some thought that it's harmful to the kidneys and to your cardiovascular system. And we just don't have any um, real data to support using the actual plant itself. So we say that it's all natural, it's plant-based, but really what we are consuming is not really all natural. Huh. It is plant-based. It's but a derivative it's of been, a plant. It's been processed. Huh. So it's still been processed, right? Um, so some of the, um, the brands that you might be familiar with would be Truvia, um, which is actually a combination of the Reb-A, um, the stevia extract combined with the sugar alcohol erythritol. And so it does, it's not really truly a non-calorie sweetener because it would contribute. Remember we said erythritol does have some calories. Mm -hmm. So there would be a few calories in there, um, but not, not a whole lot. And then there is a product called stevia in the raw, which is actually a blend of Reb A combined with dextrose and or maltodextrin. So um, it would also contribute some calories. So you have to be careful um, and read your labels for those. I'm not saying that they're not good products, that, that products that you shouldn't use. Um, I just think it's good to be educated on what you're actually putting in your, in your body. So really the stevia or these glycoside extracts are generally regarded as safe. But remember the, the actual plant itself, we can't really extrapolate that to the plant. Um, so there it generally will contain zero calories um, because your body just doesn't metabolize those glycosides and it will not raise your blood sugar. So it is a good substitute. And it is one that I recommend as for my patients to add to say their coffee or their tea um, as a stepping stone. And, and I tell them that the goal is to, you know, eventually not to have to add any sweeteners. Okay, and then we have one more more natural option, and that is monk fruit. What do you know about that? Um, I, I do know that it is a fruit native to Asia, and that it does not have any car, uh, calories associated with it, so it's zero calories, um, and it doesn't raise blood sugar. And a lot of people do like it as a choice, but I've heard a lot of people say that it has a very fruity taste, and so, um, so when they're sweetening things like coffee or tea that it adds a fruity flavor to those beverages mm. and that might not be something that they would want to do but I think overall it would be a healthy choice to to use as a substitute. All right so we just talked about a ton of different types of sugar names for sugar things might pe people might see on labels so if you had to choose one that you would recommend um, maybe as not the healthiest, but maybe the best option, what would you say um, would be the best out of the ones we discussed? Well, I think that certainly um, one of the sugar alcohols would be a good option as long as you're able to tolerate it. So erythritol having the least amount of those unwanted adverse effects that we talked about, the diarrhea and the, and the cramping um, could be an option. Um, but also, you know, using stevia and uh, monk fruit in moderation, knowing that or only as a stepping stone, like we talked about in, in trying to use as little of it as possible. So, for example, uh, when I was eliminating sugar from my diet, I switched to stevia packets, Truvia packets, actually, and I use a quarter of a packet and uh 
in comparison to that, my husband uses two full packets. And so we're trying to <laughs> wean him, him down. down. Yeah, trying to get him down because it's going to be almost impossible for him to go from two to zero. So we have to u- do this a little bit more slowly. How's he doing with that? Not so good. He's still on two. He's, he's still on two. <laughs> well, he likes sugar. He loves sugar. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and introduce the article that we will be reviewing today. Um, it is called The Sugary Drink Consumption and Risk of Cancer Results from Nutrinet Sante Prospective Cohort. So what is the Nutrinet Sante study? Okay, so the Nutrinet Sante study is actually an ongoing population study in France that was launched in 2009, uh, studying the relationship between nutrition and health and dietary patterns and nutrition-related chronic disease and utilizing a web-based approach. Uh, The study we are talking about today, however, is a cohort of that larger study describing the sugary drink consumption and low and no calorie drink consumption and associated risk of cancer. Right. So the study is looking at a cohort of the NutriNet Santi. Correct. Right. right. Um, so we know that the people in the study are obviously French. Um, what else are the some of the patient population characteristics for the NutriNet group? Well, participants had to be 18 years or older and had to have access to the internet. So right there, I think that that's one thing that we um, need to consider when we're looking at the results of the study, because does everybody have the, have access to the internet in France? Because in, in America, we have certainly have a lot of people who still do not have internet or Wi-Fi, and they would have been excluded from the study just based on the fact that they couldn't complete the questionnaires online. And so does that mean that, I'm kind of jumping ahead, but in my mind, I would be thinking that my patients who are living in these rural areas who do not have the access to the internet and would have been excluded are also the ones who are going to be consuming the highest amounts of sugary sweetened beverages. So that, you know, so we would have been excluding those people here. I'm not really sure how, if that is the same in France, but. Yes, that definitely would be a limitation if this was a similar study in the U.S., um, so what were what was the main objective of this cohort of the NutriNet Santi? All right, so the main objective was to assess the association between the consumption of sugary drinks, and uh, this included uh, 100% fruit juice, sugar sweetened beverages, um, sports drinks, uh, energy drinks, uh, anything that was consumed as a beverage that had sugar, even syrups. Yeah, I think they said they had 91 different drinks that they asked about or something crazy. Right, yeah. And then they also um, compared that or looked at um, artificial sweetened beverages, and that would include your diet soft drinks and um, diet syrups and you know, your diet milks, I guess, any milks that had artificially sweetened sweeteners in them. And then um, they looked at the association between those and the um, rates of cancer. Okay, so how did we divide up the, or how, not we, how were the groups divided? So there were two main groups. They had the sugar-sweetened beverage group, and they had the artificial-sweetened beverage group. But the sugar-sweetened beverage group was actually divided itself into sugar-sweetened beverages in one group, and then 100% fruit juice would have been in the second group of the sugar-sweetened beverage group. So they had three different um, kind of outcomes that they looked at. So 100% fruit juice, drinks that were sweetened with sugar, and then drinks that were sweetened with artificial sugar. Right. And 
those sugar sweetened beverages, um, the median sugar content for those beverages was only 10.7 grams per 100 milliliters. So just keeping that in mind. Okay. All right. So when they analyzed the results, uh, there were four different groups identified. Um, so there were groups one through four. Group one was the control group. And this was, they were divided based on the average amount of beverages that they consumed in a day. So they had one being the control group was the least amount of consumption of sugary beverages. And then the group four had the highest amount. So uh, the control, the control group, which was group one, consumed an average of 27 milliliters a day. That's very small amount. So that's one ounce. Yes. So small. Not sure how many people drink one ounce of a beverage. One twelfth of a can. Maybe they were just taking their morning medications with that, like one step. True. (laughs) Sip of OJ in the morning. Yeah, and I think um, Tyler um, was surprised by that. And as a comparison to how much Americans consume on average, we're looking at 42.7 grams of sugar through just through beverages per day which is approximately 400 milliliters per day, which really makes more sense. Um, but I think most of my patients drink more than that, to be honest. And that equates to about 34 pounds of sugar annually just from beverage, sweetened beverages. Yeah, I mean, a Coke is like 330 milliliters, I think. Um, so that's a little bit over one Coke a day here. Right. Which, I mean, in rural areas, it's probably more. Yeah, I have patients who drink a two liter a day or more just on their own. Oh, my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. So... Well, as a compare, so we in in America are drinking about an average of 400 milliliters a day. And then as Beth said, the study was divided into quartiles with one being the lowest where they drank about 27 milliliters a day. And then four was the highest. So what was the amount that they were drinking if they were in the fourth quartile? Um, so it looks like the average um, amount in milliliters was about 185.8 milliliters per day. Which is still, I mean, really comparatively to what we drink low. Yes. Right. So that is still less than a 12-ounce can of soda. Right. So since they divided the groups based on the intake of their sugar-sweetened beverages, there were a lot of different differences between the groups at baseline. So what were some of the differences that we saw between group one and then group four? Well, in the fourth quartile or the fourth group, which were considered the higher consumers, they tended to be younger uh, more educated, um, but less physically active and tended to have less family history of cancer. Um, they also uh, tended to have less prevalent cardiometabolic diseases. Uh, I believe they had slightly higher they, rates of smokers in that group as well, um, but they also had higher energy, carbohydrate, lipid, and sodium intake and um, consumed, but consumed lower alcohol, right. amounts I, of alcohol. I thought it was interesting that the group that was having the most sugar-sweetened beverages were also the healthiest. So they had less diabetes, less hypertension, less dyslipidemia. So all of those things kind of had to be controlled for when they were looking at um, the outcome and the results of what they found and how this was related to cancer. So transitioning to the results, what what did we see um, in this cohort? And I forgot to mention that it was studied over a five-year period. So from the beginning to the end was about five years. Um, and what did we find? Well, it's, I think it's good to, to understand how they collected their data too. So 
All of the participants were asked to complete online questionnaires and they were, um, it was at a dedicated website that they had to complete or asked to complete every six months. And in order to be included in the final analysis over a two-year period, there had to be at least two sets of questionnaires that were completed. So they could have missed one of their six-month questionnaire requests and still have been included in the data. But one, also one of the strengths, too, going off of that, um, when they when they looked at the questionnaires, they asked them for a typical weekday and a typical weekend. Right. And then they um, used the data, they multiplied it by five for the weekday and two for the weekend, which is good because sometimes we don't eat as healthy on the weekends as we do during the week. Um, so that was, I think, a strength. Right. So they, they were at, in a two-week time period, they were asked to complete the questionnaire on three non-consecutive days. So it couldn't have been two days back to back. So it had to be three different days. Two of those days had to be during the week and one had to be over a weekend. And then um, two of those, if at least two of those were needed in order to be included in the final analysis. Right. So we said the main result that we were looking at was incidence of cancer. Um, And we talked about the follow-up was uh, 5.1 years. So what was the incidence of cancer in those 5.1 years? So what this trial showed or what the researchers found that there was a positive association between the consumption of sugary drinks and overall cancer rates. So what does that mean? So that means that there was a, well, actually there was an 18% increase in rates of all cancers in, in the group that were sugar, sugar sweetened beverage consumers. Right. And they said that that the rate of increase was about 18% for, and it would increase based on every 100 milliliters of sugar-sweetened beverages that you were drinking a day. So if you drank more, then your rate would, risk would go up even more. Right. And um, also interesting is that there was specifically, so the 18% increase was for all types of cancers, yep. but then specifically um, it also showed a significant increase in rates of breast cancer, mm-hmm. um, and but this was found to be higher, associated more specifically to premenopausal women. But then they also looked at prostate and colorectal cancer, and they found that there was no association. No association, that's correct. So only overall cancer and breast cancer. What about when they broke it down by into our three groups? So 100% fruit juice, sugar sweetened, and then artificially sweetened. Right. So if they just looked at the 100% fruit juice beverage consumption, um, they also found a positive association with overall cancer rates by 12% increase. One thing that was very interesting is that the in the artificially sweetened beverage group, they did not find an association with the risk of cancer for all cancer sites. And right. I was actually very surprised by that. Yeah, me too. But maybe it was due to the short duration of the study. Maybe it needed a longer, I mean, five years is relatively short for a cancer study. Maybe they needed a longer time period or something. So I think that when we're looking at the results of this trial, that we need to consider several things. But one of those being that the overall consumption, daily consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages and artificial sweetened beverages was very low across all four groups and would be considered lower than what our standard American diet, what the consumption is in our standard American diet. And so if this study had been conducted in 
the United States, I think that the results may have looked a little bit different. I can't say that for sure, obviously, but right. I think that we might have seen a different result. Yeah, I would be interested to see a comparator, a similar study in the U.S. Right. And I, I think the other thing that we have to take into consideration is that, you know, these diet recalls were just that. They were questionnaires. People were sitting at home filling out questionnaires, and it was based on a recall and we all know that when you ask a patient to recall what they've eaten in the last 24 hours, that it it's difficult for them to remember what they yes. eat for breakfast this morning. And it's an underestimate of the quantity, usually. Right. It's usually an underestimation. So just wanted to, to mention that because I think that we we have to take that with, you know, take these results and think about, does this really apply to our patient population? Is, do we think that our patients would have fit into this mold? And I don't know that they would. Right. Okay. So why um, do you think the increases in cancer rates may have been seen in this study? Well, one of the things that um, we know from prior evidence is that sugar can feed cancer. Yep. And so it really makes sense that they would find that there is an increased rate of cancer in patients who consume sugar-sweetened beverages. I think what's really alarming is that these patients only had to consume about a third of the size of a can of soft drink. Mm -hmm. So in order to still be considered having a higher, an 18% increased risk of, of all cancers. Right. And also um, the effect of sugary drinks and weight gain. Um, and one of the things that the author said in this study, which I thought was really interesting. So they controlled for BMI or weight, which means that they, if the patient was heavier, um, they controlled for that as to really see the impact just of the sugar uh, or the sugary drink. But the author said that when you drink sugar-sweetened beverages, you may have increases in visceral adiposity, which is that stomach fat, mm -hmm. independently of weight gain. So you might have more fat in your stomach area, which is the more dangerous kind of fat, but not actually see that on the scale. Um, so even though they controlled for the weight gain, they still could not control for this factor that may have occurred um, with an increase in visceral adiposity. Um, so I thought that that was interesting as well. Right. So, um, and we know that the visceral adiposity is one of those huge risk factors for insulin resistance, metabolic syndrome, and all of the things that we've already talked about, type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Right. So we talked a little bit about how um, this may not be 100% applicable to our patients, but what do we think is the takeaway for our listeners and what we can tell our patients as healthcare providers? What are we really, what's the main thing from this study that we should take away? I think that it just confirms to some extent what we've already been telling our patients, that it's healthiest to limit the amount of sugar that we add to our foods or consume in, in processed foods. And so I think one of the first things that we can tell patients is to stop eating processed foods or limit them as much as possible. And then we can work on added sugars. Yes. Great. I would agree. Um, so I'm really not going to be changing my recommendation. I'm sticking with the same. Try not to do a lot of sugar-sweetened beverages. Try to eliminate them. What are some things that people can really do um, maybe add to their water that might be more healthy if people just don't want to drink water all the time? 
Well, I think that the more natural you sweeten your beverages, the better. So one of the things that I recommend is adding fruits to your water. Uh, so you can add lemons, limes, oranges, berries. Um, we have um, pitchers and, and cups now that have yep. the little frozen section in the middle where you can freeze your fruit and then stick it in the middle and yep. it um, leaches out into the water and it sweetens it naturally. So you don't have to add any sugar and it's very good. And unsweetened tea, black coffee, those are good options as right. well because they don't have any added sugar. Right. Um, okay. Any final takeaways from the study um, or anything else that we haven't already covered that you think is important? Just limit sugar. Um, okay. So awesome. So that was a great discussion on the study. Um, I think that this is definitely something to consider, um, when we are looking at our diet and our consumption of beverages and which ones we want to pick. So Beth, thank you very, very much for your contribution today and for our discussion. We loved having you. Thank you. And if you can tell us your one tip for healthy living or your one health and wellness tip that you um, would like our listeners to take away from from you. Well, I think that since our topic today was um, sugar, I can say that the least amount of sugar that you consume, the better and switching to whole food sources to get your sugar fixed. So whole fruits, apples, pineapples, whatever the case may be. Um, Last night, my daughter made a banana frozen banana ice cream that is just bananas. Yum. Only bananas. And if you put it in a food processor and whip up frozen bananas, it tastes like banana ice cream and it's delicious. So that's one way that you can get your sugar fix is try to eat sugar in whole food uh, form. Awesome. Ty, anything that you needed to say to wrap us up? Nope, not this time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you guys both for being here today. Um, I appreciate you both immensely. And thank you all of our listeners um, for your support and your listening. Um, I will post a bunch of the information um, that we talked about today on our Facebook page, which is Health Formation. So please follow us there for the most up-to-date information on our podcast. And thank you again for listening. And I hope that you have a happy and healthy day. Bye, everyone. Bye.